year is 1609. What a time to be alive. In London, you can go to the theater and catch the fresh new play Macbeth. In Amsterdam, you can make a quick buck at trading stocks, a brand new invention. Science is on fire as well. Kepler's Astronomia Nova is published this very year. It's an exquisite masterpiece demonstrating that planets move in elliptical orbits, among other things. Quite clearly, it's the single greatest scientific work since the time of Archimedes. So many exciting things are happening all at once. How will you keep up with this whirlwind of innovations, these fascinating uh, developments happening all around you? Uh, perhaps with the aid of another newfangled invention, the newspaper, the, the first of which comes out uh, right this very year, uh, promising in its title to cover for uh, the, its German readers all Gedenkwürdigen Historien, thoughtworthy events. Truly, it is a time of the new. The winds of change are blowing throughout Europe. Thoughtworthy events are everywhere you look. Now, what about our friend Galileo? What is he up to at this time? Well, you won't find him in any of those uh, chronicles of thoughtworthy events. Galileo is already well into his middle age. He's a frail man of 45, not infrequently bedridden with rheumatic or arthritic pains. Uh, he's stuck teaching basic geometry for a pittance of a salary in some backwater town. Had Galileo died from his many ailments in this year, 1609, he would have been all but forgotten today. He would have been an insignificant footnote in the history of science, no more memorable than a hundred of his contemporaries. It's often been said that uh, mathematics is a young man's game. Newton, he had his Annus Mirabilis in his early 20s, the prime of my age for invention, as he later uh, called it. Kepler was the same age when he finished his first masterpiece, the Mysterium Cosmographicum, in 1596. Uh, Galileo, he's already nearly twice this age, and he has really nothing to show for it but some confused piles of notes of highly dubious value. In short, as a mathematician, the aging Galileo had proved little except his own mediocrity. It is this middle-aged, run-of-the-mill nobody that first hears of a new invention, the telescope. Now, here was his chance at last. Galileo only had to point his contraption to the skies and record what he saw. No need anymore for mathematical talent or painstaking scientific investigations. For 20 years, Galileo had tried and failed to gain scientific fame the hard way, but now, at last, a bounty of it lay ripe for the plunder. All you needed was ice and being first. Indeed, this mysterious uh, new optical tube for seeing things close, as people called it at the time, it was the uh, the talk of the town. Galileo first hears about it in July 1609. In a week or two later, there was a traveler uh, coming to Italy, offering one for sale in Padua and Venice for an outrageous price, about twice Galileo's yearly salary. And this enterprising salesman, he found no takers uh, for his offer. However, the sense of opportunity re remained in the air, and it was an opportunity tailor-made for Galileo, wasn't it? Finally, a path to scientific fame that required only handiwork, none of that tiresome thinking in which he was so uh, deficient. The design of the telescopes, it was still a trade secret among the Dutch uh, spectacle makers who had stumbled upon the discovery. But acting fast was of the essence. Uh, making a basic telescope is not rocket science. Soon many people figure out how to make their own. 
It took no special talent or unique inventiveness to come up with the idea that uh, combining two different lenses uh, would create a device allowing people to see faraway objects uh, enlarged. Indeed, reading glasses, magnif magnifying glasses were already in common use. Uh, they obviously made texts and other things appear bigger. They were used for uh, uh, thread count in the cloth business, for example. So it was not at all uh, far-fetched to think that uh, lenses could be used to magnify uh, distant objects as well. Also, the, the external shape of telescopes is quite common knowledge because people reported uh, seeing these things and they suggested that there were at least two lenses combined in a long uh, cylinder, obviously. So it didn't take a genius, therefore, to soon strike upon the very simple recipe that Galileo found, which was take one convex lens and one concave lens and stick them in a tube in opposite ends. And you look through the concave end and that's it. There is no theoretical knowledge of optics involved in this stuff at all. It was just hands-on craftsmanship, trial and error, as Galileo himself basically says in his books. So... Uh, about a month or so after first hearing about the telescope for the first time, Galileo has managed to build his own telescope, eight times magnification. Uh, a bit later, maybe he reaches 12 times magnification, eventually 16 or so. Now, if you go to a modern toy store or a sports goods store and you just buy whatever cheapest binoculars they have, that pair of binoculars would have the same magnification as a Galilean telescope, basically. So if you have an old pair of field binoculars lying around, you basically have a Galilean telescope. So go dust it off, why don't you, and follow along with your own observations as we describe what uh, Galileo found. Well, in any case, uh, Galileo's first goal, when he has a telescope uh, of his own devising, is to leverage it into a more lucrative appointment uh, for himself. And he gives demonstrations to various important dignitaries to the infinite amazement of all, according to himself, he was never one for modesty, was he? So on the basis of this, anyway, Galileo enters multiple negotiations about improved career prospects. And so he has these hands-on optical trials, as well as lens grinding and so on, going on. And then these showmanship demonstrations, and then this shrewd self-marketing hyperbole about how infinitely amazed everyone is by his work. And so with all these things, Galileo must have had a busy couple of months indeed. On top of this uh, marketing campaign and uh, juggling potential job offers, uh, his regular teaching duties were starting up again uh, in the fall at the university. So we can easily understand why then in these hectic days, uh, the scientific importance of the new instrument for astronomy was not realized right away. At first, neither Galileo nor anyone else thought that the telescope was primarily uh, an astronomical instrument. Um, Galileo instead tried to market it as a thing of inestimable value in all business and every undertaking at sea or on land. For instance, spotting a ship early on the horizon, perhaps an enemy ship or, or whatever for navigation purposes or what have you. Uh, however, the moon does indeed make an obvious object of observation, especially at night when there's little else to look at. So it's plausible that moon observations were perhaps part of Galileo's sales pitch routine, more or less from the outset, though more as a gimmick than as science. But this was soon to change. In the dark of winter, the black night sky is less bashful with its secrets than in summer. It monopolizes the visible world from dinner to breakfast. It seems so eager to be seen 
that it would be rude not to look. In January, Galileo takes up the invitation and he spots moons around Jupiter. Yikes! Other planets have moons? This changes everything. Suddenly it is clear that the telescope is the key to a revolution in astronomy. Eternal scientific fame is there for the taking for whoever is first to plant his flag on the shores of this terra incognita. For the next two months, Galileo goes on a frenzied race against the clock. He writes during the day, raids the heavens for one precious secret after another at night. In early March, he has already cobbled together enough to claim the main pearls of the heavens for himself. He rushes his little booklet into print with the greatest haste. The last observation entry is dated March 2nd, and only 10 days later, the book is already coming off the presses. It's remarkable, a turnaround time that modern academic publishers can only dream of, even though they do not have to work with handset metal type and uh, copper engravings for the illustrations and so on. It was a race against the clock and Galileo won. I thank God from the bottom of my heart that he has pleased to make me the sole initial observer of so many astounding things concealed for the ages. Those are Galileo's words. And indeed his palpable relief is fully justified. Little more than dumb luck or as Galileo himself would have it, the grace of God separated Galileo from uh, Numerous other telescopic pioneers who also produced telescopes and made the same discoveries independently of Galileo. For example, Simon Marius in Germany, he discovered the moons of Jupiter one single day later than Galileo. And so it goes to many other of Galileo's discoveries. As one historian observes, a delay of only three or four months would have set Galileo behind several of his rivals and undercut his claim to priority regarding several key discoveries with the telescope. And perhaps indeed it was not the grace of God, but Galileo's desperation, born of decades of impotence as a mathematician, that drove him to publish first. Being incapable of making any contribution to the mathematical side of science and astronomy, Galileo needed and craved this shortcut to stardom more than anyone else. Accordingly, Galileo greedily sought to milk every last drop of fame he could from the telescope. I do not wish to show the proper method of making them to anyone. Rather, I hope to win some fame. Those are Galileo's own words. Uh, his competitors quickly realized, as one contemporary says, we must resign ourselves to obtaining the invention without Galileo's help. Yes, indeed. Still six years after Galileo's booklet of discoveries, uh, people who thought science should be a shared and egalitarian enterprise, they were rightly upset by Galileo's selfish quest uh, for personal glory, one of them wrote a letter to Galileo as follows. How long will you keep us on the tenterhooks? You promised us in your sidereal message to let us know uh, to make, how to make a telescope so that we could see all the things that are invisible to the naked eye, and you haven't done so to the present day, six years uh, later. Those are the complaints sent to Galileo, and they were quite right. Meanwhile, Galileo never missed the chance to mock stuffy Aristotelian professors for thinking that truth is to be discovered not in the world or in nature, but by comparing texts. As Galileo wrote in scorn, adding in fact that I use their own words, you know, that's Galileo saying, they even take pride in how they are comparing texts rather than looking at the world. Well, if Galileo genuinely wanted these people to turn to nature, he could have shared his technique 
for telescope construction. In truth, it served its own interest very well that these people were left with no choice but comparing texts, while Galileo claimed all the novelties for the heavens uh, for himself. Let's look at Galileo's professional situation in a bit more detail. Uh, You may have heard that Galileo was a professor of mathematics, and indeed he was for 20 years. We must not let the title fool us, however. The position had nothing to do with the research frontier in the field. In modern terms, Galileo's position was more comparable to that of a high school teacher. Galileo taught very basic and practical courses. His lectures were unoriginal, usually cribbed from standard sources, just plagiarized basically. His mathematical lectures, they went no further than elementary Euclidean geometry. He also had to teach a basic astronomy course mainly for medical students who had to be able to cast horoscopes. And they needed it to determine uh, when and when not to, to bleed a patient and such things. Perhaps Galileo didn't mind about the horoscope part. Uh, he seems to have been quite open to astrology, judging by the fact that he cast horoscopes for his own family members and friends without uh, remuneration. Alas, he, he did not enjoy much success as an astrologer either. Here's a quote from the Cambridge Companion to Galileo. In 1609, Galileo cast a horoscope for the Grand Duke Ferdinand I, foretelling a long and happy life. The Duke died a few months later. (laughs) That's the end of the quote. That's great, isn't it? It's a nice bit of uh, deadpan there by the Cambridge Companion. Galileo was eager to get out of his lowly university post. Now with the telescope, he was in a decent negotiating position. After much scheming, he resigned from the university and took up a court appointment. He would rather work for some rich guy, a patron, than at a university. Uh, that's how it went at this time. Some decades later, Leibniz, for example, did the, the same thing. He could easily, Leibniz could have taken a university job if he wanted to be an academic. But uh, who, wants to, who wants that if you can be the resident scholar in the gilded halls of some prince? That was much more desirable. So Galileo got his wish. His new appointment freed him from teaching duties and it boosted his finances. But Galileo also had an additional demand. Here's what he says. I desire that in addition to the title of mathematician, his highness will annex that of philosopher. For I may claim to have studied more years in philosophy than months in pure mathematics. That's Galileo's quote. This is traditionally taken as a request for a promotion. In addition... To being a great mathematician, Galileo also wanted recognition in philosophy, which in some circles was considered more prestigious, and in any case it included what is today called uh, science, which was then called natural philosophy, considered part of philosophy. I think, however, that a more literal reading of Galileo's request is in order. Galileo is not only declaring himself a philosopher, he is also confessing his ignorance in mathematics, actually. Taken literally, his statement that he has spent more years in philosophy than months in mathematics implies that he could not possibly have spent more than two or three years at most in mathematics, which indeed sounds about right, considering his documented mediocrity in this field. Anyway, back to the telescope. So, Galileo, he had some success with it, clearly, but not everyone was convinced Some believe that the telescope carries specters to the eyes and deludes the mind with various images bewitched and deformed. That's a quote from the contemporary sources. 
Um, perhaps these peculiar Dutch glasses were nothing but uh, a cousin of the gypsy soothsayer's uh, crystal ball, a bunch of hocus pocus. Indeed, the transmigration into heaven, even whilst we remain here upon earth in the flesh, as Robert Hooke put it, the effect of the telescope, that, that may indeed seem like so much black magic, doesn't it? Add to this, then, the numerous imperfections of the early telescopes, which often made it very difficult, even for sympathetic friends, to confirm observations and claims made by Galilee and so on, not to mention gave ample ammunition to outright skeptics. And, in fact, we can see this in Galileo's own text. We find Galileo on the defensive, right from the outset, just a few pages into his first booklet. One of Galileo's main claims is that, seen to the t telescope, the moon appeared to have enormous mountains and craters. This is, was a big deal at the time, allegedly one of Galileo's monumental discoveries. And this was based on shadow effects. So looking at the moon when it's uh, half full, for example, you see that the surface is uneven because of the shadows cast by mountains and craters. So instead of having the light shadow, the light and the dark part of the moon being separated by a perfect line, it's craggly, you know. But uh, already there, there's a big problem. The boundary of the moon, the outer rim, was still perfectly smooth, even though this uh, middle line division between light and darkness was uneven, the, why is the boundary then even? That's, that's peculiar. That's a crazy inconsistency. How can there be big mountains in the middle of the moon and none along the edge? That doesn't make any sense. And yet, that's what you see through the telescope. That's what it looks like. Here are Galileo's own words in the, his, his booklet, the Sidereus Nuncius of 1610, his famous publication, his first claim to fame. Here's what he says. I am told that many have serious reservations on this point. For if the surface of the moon is full of countless bumps and depressions, then why is the whole periphery of the full moon not seen to be uneven, rough and sinuous? Galileo replies that this is because the moon has an atmosphere which stops our sight from penetrating to the actual body of the moon at the edge only, since there our visual rays cut it obliquely. That is to say, when we look at the edge of the moon, our line of sight spends more time traveling through the atmosphere of the moon and that's why it's you know blurred so we can't see the mountains at the at the edge but we can in the middle hence it is obvious says galileo that not only the earth but the moon also is surrounded by a vaporous sphere that is to say it has an, an, an atmosphere air around it which is of course completely wrong so already we see then that there is there, there were serious problems with the telescope. It's not as simple as saying, well, the telescope showed everyone these new facts. What was a fact and what was an inference or an illusion? That's not a trivial question. And we see that Galileo himself got it wrong, in fact, right off the bat, just a few pages into his first published work on this. And there's plenty more where that came from. Another puzzling fact was that the planets were magnified by the telescope, but not the stars. The stars remained the same, just point-sized light spots, no matter what the strength of the telescope. And some people at the time even mistook this for a law that the enlargement appears uh, less and less the further away the objects observed are, are removed from the eye. And Galileo, he tried to explain these things. Once again, he got it completely wrong. 
correct explanation was given in 1665. It's a technical optics uh, phenomena. Clearly then, in light of all these challenges to the reliability and consistency of the telescope, it was important to understand its basis in theoretical optics. That is why, presumably, Galileo felt obliged to swear at the outset in his, in his famous work that, quote, on some other occasion we shall explain the entire theory of this instrument, end quote. To those aware of Galileo's mathematical shortcomings, it will come as no surprise that Galileo never delivered on this promise. Kepler, a competent mathematician, took up the task instead, and in the process he came up with a fundamentally new telescope design which is better than that of Galileo, that's uh, Kepler's uh, Dioptrice of 1611. Um, Kepler's uh, telescope it uses two convex lenses instead of Galileo's pair of one convex and one concave lens. According to Galileo, uh, Kepler's work was, in his own work, so obscure that it would seem that the author did not understand it himself. A modern scholar comments that this is a curious statement in Kepler's work unlike many other of his books, is remarkably straightforward. And apparently it was not straightforward enough, though, for a simpleton like Galileo. Anyway, uh, Galileo's naive conception of optics it was certainly far inferior to that of Kepler. It was still uh, based on the old notion that um, seeing involved rays of sight spreading outward from the eye, rather than uh, conversely. He states this repeatedly in numerous quotes, where he explicitly makes this assertion, Galileo. So no wonder he didn't really understand it, the, couldn't give a theoretical account of, of the telescope. Now, regarding the mountains of the moon issue, let's look a bit more at the significance of that. It has often been uh, overstated. So Galileo's famous discovery is, as he puts it, that the moon is not robed in a smooth and polished surface, but is in fact rough and uneven, covered everywhere, just like the Earth's surface, with huge prominences, deep valleys and chasms. Now, it's all too easy to cast this report by Galileo as a revolutionary discovery. The Aristotelian worldview rested on a sharp division between the sublunar and heavenly realm. Our pedestrian world is one of uh, constant change. It's a bustling soup of the four elements, earth, water, air and fire, uh, mixing and matching in fleeting configurations. Uh, the heavens, by contrast, their pristine realm of perfection and immutability, governed by the very own fifth element, uh, entirely different from the physical stuff of our everyday world. Uh, so, If we are predisposed to view Galileo as the father of modern science, a pleasing narrative readily suggests itself that, aha, with this revolutionary discovery of mountains of the moon, Galileo disproved what everybody believed and destroyed the disunity between heaven and earth and this is indeed a standard story that is peddled by many scholars. Not only popular conception, but in fact uh, leading historical scholarship. Let me quote two of them. Here's one. Every educated person in the 16th century took as well-established fact that the moon was a very different sort of place than the earth. The lunar surface, according to the common wisdom, was supposed to be as smooth as the shaven head of a monk. And here's another quote to the same effect. This one is from a Harvard University Press book from 2015, Galileo's Telescope. You can go look it up. Uh, this stuff is indeed mainstream modern scholarship. And here's the quote. In those years, virtually no one questioned the ontological difference between heaven and earth. The difference between earth and the heavenly bodies 
was an absolute truth for astrologers and astronomers, theologians and philosophers of every ilk and school. If the moon turned out to be covered with mountains just like the earth, a millenary representation of the sky would be shattered. That's the end of that quote. So, in other words, Galileo sent an entire worldview crashing down, using data and hard facts to expose the prejudices on which human thoughts had been based for thousands of years. Now, the problem with this narrative lies in one word, everybody. The Aristotelian worldview is not what everybody believed. It is what one particular sect of philosophers believed. As ever, Galileo's claim to fame rests on conflating these two things. If we compare Galileo to this sect of fools, as Galileo wants us to do, of course, that's what everything that he, that's how he sets up his, all his dialogues and so on, then indeed, if that's your, your comparison uh, class, then indeed he comes out looking pretty good. Members of this sect, these Aristotelians, they did indeed try to deny the mountains on the moon. They, they, uh, in backpedaling desperation, they tried to explain this stuff away. For instance, they tried to postulate that, uh, in fact, the mountains were not on the surface of the moon at all, but rather they were enclosed in a perfectly round, clear crystal ball. So that way, the surface of the moon was smooth after all, even though there were shadows and stuff, because the shadows were actually in the interior of this glass sphere, you see. Now, if we mistake this kind of rubbish for the state of science of the day, then indeed Galileo will appear a great revolutionary hero. But to anyone outside of that uh, particular sect, blinded by dogma, the idea of a mountainous moon had been perfectly natural for thousands of years. It is obvious to anyone who has ever looked at the moon that its surface is far from uniform. Clearly, it has dark spots and light spots. And if one wanted to maintain their Aristotelian theory, you could try to argue, as many people indeed did, that this is perhaps some kind of marbling effect. The moon is still perfectly spherical, only has some differential coloration, like a smooth piece of, of marble. Or maybe it's a reflection thing. Perhaps the moon is so polished and smooth that it's reflective like a mirror. So the light and dark areas you know, the face of the moon are not actually irregularities in the moon itself, but they're just mirror images of maybe oceans or whatever from Earth seen in that in that mirror. So whatever one thinks of the possibility of such arguments, they are certainly defensive in nature. You know, the Aristotelian theory is on the back foot trying to explain even the most rudimentary phenomena that any child is familiar with. That is even before the telescope, you know, you can just... Any fool can just look at the moon and see clearly it's not perfectly smooth. So the idea of an irregular moon is an obvious and natural alternative. Which is why we find, for instance, in Plutarch, a millennium and a half before Galileo, the suggestion that, quote, the moon is very uneven and rugged. It's a literal quote from antiquity, saying the exact same thing as Galileo. is an obvious fact to anybody who cares to think. If you look to actual scientists instead, and mathematicians and mathematical competent people instead of Aristotelian fools, we find that Galileo's, so-called Galileo's discovery of mountains on the moon was already accepted as fact long before. Kepler had already, I quote him, he had deduced that the body of the moon is dense and with a rough surface, or in other words, that the moon is, quote, the kind of body that the earth is uneven and mountainous. Those are quotes from a 1604 work by Kepler, that is before the telescope. Kepler also points out 
that this was the opinion of his teacher, Meslin, before him, who, according to Kepler, proves by many inferences that the moon also got many of the features of the terrestrial globe, such as continents, seas, mountains, and air, or what somehow corresponds to them. That's from Kepler's Mysterium Cosmographicum 1596. It is long before the telescope. In a later edition of this work, Kepler added a note that Galileo has at last orally confirmed this belief with the Belgian telescope, thereby vindicating what Kepler calls the consensus of many philosophers on this point throughout the ages who have dared to be wise about the common herd. Indeed, in fact, even Galileo himself says that his observations are reason to, as he says, revive the old Pythagorean opinion that the moon is like another earth. So, altogether, Galileo's discovery of mountains on the moon was not a revolutionary refutation of what everybody thought that, that they knew, but rather it was a vindication of what everybody with half a brain had seen for thousands of years. Now, the same goes for other supposed discoveries by Galileo relating to the moon. For instance, the discovery of the phenomena of earthshine, like moonshine but in the reverse direction. Re uh, reflected light from the earth lights up the moon uh, to some extent, even when it's not in the sun. In the, within the rays of the sun. Galileo discussed this as one of the novelties made clear by the telescope. In reality, it has already been correctly explained previously by Kepler in 1604. A similar reality check is in order regarding the idea one sometimes hears that Galileo's discoveries regarding the moon instigated celestial physics. And so these people say, well, by revealing the similarity of heaven and earth, Galileo, he opened the door to a unification of terrestrial and celestial physics. In other words, he led us to the, the brink of Newton's insight that the moon and the apple are governed by the very same gravitational force. In reality, though, the unity between terrestrial and celestial physics have been advocated since antiquity, as we have seen in great length. You don't need a telescope to realize that this idea makes sense. Meanwhile, Galileo's bumbling and superficial attempt to do celestial physics are an embarrassment to all, as we have seen. Remember his erroneous thing about planetary speeds being determined by falling from some faraway point toward the sun, for instance, or his wrong-headed calculation how long it would take the moon to fall to the earth, all based on completely erroneous conceptions. In fact, Kepler had already written an excellent book on celestial physics before the telescope. This is the Astronomia Nova of 1609. This is the work where Kepler explained the elliptical orbits of the planets, which Galileo never accepted or even mentioned. And Galileo explains the elliptical orbits of the planets as the result of uh, quasi-magnetic force residing in the sun. So uh, that kind of stuff is uh, celestial physics in full swing before the telescope, clearly. And furthermore, much better than anything that Galileo ever accomplished. Okay. So, this is what I have had to say about the telescope itself, and next we must turn to the impact of the telescopic evidence on the debate between geocentrism and heliocentrism. So, that's next time. Okay, thank you.